Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always. Thank you so much for tuning in. Sorry I've been on hiatus for a little while, but hopefully we'll get back to regular podcasts here. Today's book, author's guest, or around the title, The Dancer and the Devil, John O'Neill and Sarah Wynn. We'll get to that in just a second. But first, let's take our sponsor. I'm getting serious about Twitter growth. I think Elon Musk, um, we can have the debate over his prowess for free speech, but I think that his desire to grow Twitter is really going to impact how the platform works over the next three to four years. So I'm doubling down on Twitter, which is why I'm a part of the Masterclass. The Masterclass community helps you figure out how to grow, They have threads, they give you support, give you advice, all the stuff that you need. There's, I mean, <laughs> I can't even go through all the content that's on there. So if you're serious about Twitter growth, use my link in the description to sign up and help sponsor the podcast. And when you get to the Discord server, ping me. Let me know you're there. I'd love to connect with you. Now, our guests today are, again, the authors of The Dancer and the Devil, John O'Neill and Sarah Wynn. John is a best-selling author for the book Unfit for Command, and with Sarah Wynn, the Amazon number three bestseller, The Fisherman's Tomb. Um, We'll link to both of those in the show notes. Uh, They have very long, long... um, biographies here because they are very credentialed individuals so the book is again is the dancer and the devil we'll link to that and their website which you can find all at ryanraysenior.com that's ryanraysr.com where the show notes are hosted without further ado let's get to john and sarah well john and sarah it is lovely to have you on the show today how are you doing we're, we're, we're thrilled to be on, on your podcast thanks it's for wonderful. having us okay so we have a provocative title <laughs> Where did it come from? It came from uh, an unusual source. It came from one of the probably the most evil man of the 20th century, Joseph Stalin. And at the Tehran conference with Winston Churchill, he proposed, he said, as soon as we capture Germany, we need to kill a million Germans. And Churchill said, we can't do that. Uh, we're Christians. And, and uh, Stalin said, God may be a Christian, but the devil is a good communist said, we can kill a million people and nobody will even notice. It's just a statistic, he said. It's only if they learn individual stories that could be a tragedy. So we got the title, The Dancer, for Pavlova and the Devil, for the self-proclaimed devil, Stalin. And studying the book, instead of presenting people with a, a number, he killed 20 million, we take individual people because Stalin's right. It's knowing the tragedy of Pavlova and the individual victims he murdered and then Putin murdered and then she had murdered that makes the story more real. And so it tells those stories. And at the same time, of course, tells his development of bioweapons and the secret ways in which he killed them using literally murders, stage suicides, poisons, bioweapons. One of the things I've thought about, and maybe we talked on the show before previously, is this idea that you you have Adolf Hitler, who obviously was a terrible human being and hope he rots in the pits of hell for all eternity. But if you're talking about pure body count, he's actually not, you know, there, there's there's some like Stalin and uh, Mao who far, far exceed him. Why is it that, um, at least it seems in modern day, that we think of Hitler as the worst when, again, not from a, I mean, you can talk about the cruelty, but just from a body count standpoint, he's actually not the, the top. There, there's some awful people. Mao probably killed more than either, uh, in this raw body count, more than either Stalin or Hitler. And historians argue whether Hitler killed more or uh, 
Stalin. Stalin got at least 20 million. Hitler, of course, in the Holocaust got six to seven million uh, at least, and then many others, probably they're uncounted. Um, I, 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 what really happened is when Nazi Germany fell, we had total access to all the people he had murdered and, and the full stories. And so we had the Nuremberg trials, but in Soviet Russia, it didn't fall. And so it was only much later in the 1990s and only for a brief period that we got a chance to look behind the curtain, so to speak. Uh, most of the, or a great deal of the material in our book comes from that little period from 1990 to 1997. Uh, for example, we didn't even know how Stalin died until that period. We, uh, they announced he died of a stroke. Well, a professor named Jonathan Brent from Yale actually got into Stalin's secret archives from which he learned, he got the real autopsy. And Stalin died from stomach bleeding, almost certainly from warfarin. And he got the statements of Beria, Stalin's underling, who said over and over again, I killed Stalin. I saved your lives. I killed Stalin. So he poisoned Stalin with warfarin, now used as rat poison. Well, so big chunks of history were all hidden except for a little period of time. You know that this uh, guy Putin now has Stalin's picture on the side of buses again in Russia, like Stalin is some good guy to be emulated. And in China, they carry his, uh, they actually carry his portrait in parades. Like he, like he's some good man. He's one of the mass murders of all of history. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, so you got Hitler, you got Stalin and you got Mao kind of three, the three people that are kind of the big ones of that, of that era. Um, obviously Mao come in a little bit later. Um, and it, it's just, it's just a fascinating thing when we think about it, at least in the West is how we, how we, um, um, there's a big, there's a big push in the U S about, you know, uh, against Nazism. And it's like, well, this whole communism thing, <laughs> this whole communism thing, you know, we should also consider that as a, as a, you know, a source of evil. And that's part of what you guys are going for in the book. And, um, what's happened, you know, we have this cold war period, you, you, you know, we have the, the wall falling, kind of getting this access, but, but now it seems that socialism and communism, have been kind of recast and people aren't really talking about um, all the atrocities that have happened under them. And so it's kind of interesting that you guys said, well, we don't want to do the big body count because we throw those numbers, but we want to go in there and do talk about individuals. Um, and so how has that been received? Because on one hand, I can see the usefulness of the big, huge numbers going, oh my gosh, this is, this is terrible. And on the other hand, making it very personal because, um, you know, going through COVID, um, you could see that there's all these numbers you're like, man, well, I don't know anybody that died of COVID. It's not really real to me. People would say, and then someone dies like, oh, okay, well now I can kind of get it. So what was the, like, how um, did you determine which cases to use? Um, and is there some that you left out that you would like to maybe, you know, point out? Well, the key to what's going on is what's called cultural Marxism. And it was started by a guy named Gramercy and Stalin became the great prophet of it. The, the theory of cultural Marxism is that the very words you use should be eliminated or changed in order to advance the revolution. That history, historical events should be deleted if they don't help the ongoing revolution and they're just not discussed or changed. Uh, culture serves no purpose except to advance the revolution. So you wipe out ballets. In the case of Pavlova, you wiped out all the, the Nutcracker, uh, Swan Lake, all the, because why? Because they had nobles in them and that was inconvenient. And then you had to wipe out the dancers themselves and you wipe out the uh, singers. It's the same thing that caused Dave Chappelle to get beaten up mm -hmm. uh, yesterday. It's the theory that you actually control people's minds. It's not enough to control the banks and to control the, the oil companies, to control the means of production. 
you actually have to control the human mind. The way Stalin said it is, he who controls the present controls the past, meaning that you can actually go and change history. Uh, in Russia, they say, we know the future, meaning the Communist Party teaches us the future. It's the past that keeps changing all the time. And uh, so that's what you're dealing with, uh, cultural Marxism that insists on controlling the actual words you speak, the images you see, the news you read, and so on, all um, the problem they've got, honestly, Ron, is the, the uh, communism promises heaven on earth. It promises perfect equality. Everyone's going to get along. I'm okay, you're okay, and we're all prosperous. But it delivers absolute hell in places like Soviet Russia, in, uh, in Venezuela, in Cuba, in China, in terms of human freedom, it delivers absolute hell. Of course, they mix it with capitalism, sort of succeed using a capitalist system, and then all of a sudden try and seize you know, actual control. Um, we don't, it, people are afraid when we, to get this book published, uh, we were offered a lot of money to publish just the Pavlova part of the book, as long as we would obliterate Stalin and Putin which the publishers were afraid to they discuss. They didn't want to publish China. And uh, of course, we weren't, weren't willing to do that. We have to get the whole glass of water in the way we wrote the book. But people, until six months ago, were afraid to discuss Putin. Um, Putin is a butcher and a murderer who's murdered and poisoned person after person in Russia. And yet until he began bombing the Ukraine, you, you couldn't publish an anti-Putin book. Uh, Xi in China is one of the great murders in human history already. I mean, he's, uh, you know, a little over half uh, Mao's age. He's killed uh, directly maybe a million and a half people in China. And if you attribute the COVID virus, at least to his regime, because it certainly leaked out of his bioweapons plants, he killed another 11 million. He's halfway into the, into the big leagues in terms of sl the slaughter. And yet you, to publish a book that actually says that in the United States is hard to do. They're afraid to report it. They're afraid to report that Fan Bingding, the greatest of all Chinese stars, has been put in house imprisonment, that Wang Yi, the minister, has been, uh, you know, is in prison, its entire congregation executed, that China's only indigenous, first indigenous Nobel Prize winner was in prison, denied medical treatment, and then died. It's not uh, almost unreported because people are afraid of it. The same things happened before in the 1930s. There was a slaughter in the Ukraine. Almost uh, 8 million people died of starvation, first murder and then starvation. The New York Times published a series with a guy named Walter Durante, and he said, no, there's no famine in the Ukraine. It's all made up. It's not true. And he won the Nobel, I mean, won the Pulitzer Prize in 1932 for doing that. And the guy who actually reported it, a guy named Gareth Jones said no, in, in other newspapers, the Hearst papers said, no, I've been all through there, they're all dying. Right. And what Gareth Jones got was a bullet in the back of the head and from the Chinese communists in Manchuria when he was reporting there. Yeah, it's, it's and that's one of the things that I think when you look at the, the podcast world is that, you know, not all podcasts, but a lot of podcasts are wanting to bring on people with different perspectives, whether you agree or not, to kind of hear different sides and to expose their audience to different different lines of thinking. Um, and that is counter to the communist narrative. Um, but I, I want to go back to this, this idea of um, communism being against art and culture, which I think is very appropriate. 
But if you look at the the current state of the uh, the West in the U.S., you have you know Hollywood is predominantly left, which leans predominantly closer to socialism or some some form of socialism, which is closer to communism. Um, and yet, as as things progress, as you see these these ideas um, move out, and now you have podcasting or you know, alternative media's, they're the ones who are also saying, no, we don't want all of these types of things. So you can kind of see in our own in our own um, culture how um, as you progress more of a towards the left, that they don't want as much um, um, uh, free speech or free thought out there. But uh, Sarah, give me your thoughts on on the on the Nutcracker. Like, break it down for folks um, on these plays, on this ballet. You know, because I've been to my daughter had a ballet when she's little. I've been to I think the Nutcracker proper up in Fort Worth one time. I'm not a ballet expert, but why would someone? You can see why this conversation would be a threat potentially to Stalin or to Xi or someone like that. But why would a ballet be one? And what was unique about this one? she became the ultimate symbol of artistic freedom. It goes back to the doctrine of cultural hegemony that John was just talking about. She stood for everything that Stalin couldn't tolerate. She traveled 44 countries and an estimated 400,000 miles, uh, which is amazing in the days before air travel, seating classical ballet. She was a symbol of Imperial Russia, old Russia. Uh, and she actually, Stalin sent her mother who had been missing to her in Paris to try to get her to come back uh, to Russia. She denied she wouldn't come. She was declared an enemy of the state. Um, and then we present, I think, a very strong case that Stalin had her killed through a group called the Yasha Gang that was operating in Paris. She had lunch at her hotel at the Ritz in Paris and then uh, boarded a train for The Hague and said, I've been poisoned by the food I ate in Paris and no one took her seriously. It would be another 60 years, 60 plus years before the poisoning of the Yasha gang was discovered. So they treated her for uh, you know, pleurisy and other things. And she, she died at the hands of, of the Yasha gang. They were using a poison called, uh, a deal called anthrax. Anthrax is a bacteria. And so you pick up a handkerchief and you, you put it next to your mouth and you don't know it, but what you've got is anthrax bacteria in your lungs inevitably fatal before uh, uh, antibiotics, and even with antibiotics, fatal 80% of the time. Russia had a huge anthrax project operating. It was called, typical of the Soviets, the Anti-Plague Project. They even have yearbooks that you can read of the guys talking about, boy, you remember the old anthrax project. It leaked repeatedly, and the book discusses the uh, leaks. Stalin loved ballet. Um, he prided himself as he thought that ballet could be a useful servant of the revolution. He had an actual box at the Bolshoi and he, he killed several of the directors at ballet. One guy presented a Russian Imperial ballet. He went to an insane asylum where he died uh, uh, six months later. Uh, there were ballerinas who disappeared. And so if you, you did, it was like sort of like Nero in the Colosseum. If you did well, it was thumbs up. If you did bad, it was thumbs down. He had a, a mistress who was a ballerina. And so he was consumed with ballet. Well, this woman was dancing all over the world. She was the great symbol of Russia to the entire world, and indeed the symbol of ballet to the entire world. She made one movie uh, in 1930. Her friend said, come to Hollywood. This is too dangerous. Uh, and she wouldn't, she wouldn't go. And uh, instead, she, she scheduled a tour that be was to begin in The Hague and go right to the border of the Soviet Union in Poland. It was her way of kind of redeeming her people. Her great dance was the one called the Dying Swan, 
It's one that Stalin particularly hated because it's a five minute vignette and it deals really with the line between life and death. It's about uh, the Greeks thought that a, a swan, when it died, could issue loud cries for the only time in its life as it struggled for life. And there were crowds, cries of joy and also cries of sadness. And so if you, if you didn't believe in another life, when you see this uh, vignette, it's a very, very sad deal. And if you do believe it, it's really a, a, a ballet of resurrection. It was all over the world, still is done. He killed her uh, two months ago. 40 ballerinas mm -hmm. in 32 different countries danced the dying swan. The thing that I enjoyed, they danced it right inside of Xi's home and right inside of, uh, of Putin's office in the Kremlin. So the swan, we think, still flies despite his uh, murder of her. Yeah, if you go back and study Chinese history, there's a period, I think in the 40s and 50s, maybe 50s or 60s, where they were making, um, I think it was, I think they were writing novels. I can't remember. They were making some form of art, and it was, it was looked as if to the casual viewer as if it was talking about, you know, this thing. But really, it was subversive in nature. Um, and so, when you think about some of these art forms, um, sometimes in the U.S., we've kind of lost the ability to think about, hey, this, there's more to it than just the story, right? There's, there's a lot more impact here. And it's funny how. Um, these leaders can kind of actually see through that and understand the threat that some of these things could be, because once the idea is out there, people start thinking about it, they can't really stop it. And so I think you have a, you have a, you have a poet, you have the ballerina. I mean, you got all kinds of people that, that they're trying to silence and curtail. And so it's weird because on one level, it's not as if they're completely against all forms of art. It's just that the art has to be regulated in a manner that they think is not a threat to them. Um, and it, so it kind of gives a weird illusion of what's actually going on. Well, uh, Stalin, of course, bitterly hated religion. He said in 1925 that by 1935, the word God would be eliminated from the Russian language, and he would, he would make that a capital offense. But he hated equally art for art's sake. He thought art for art's sake or art for truth was a terrible threat. And the great story about that is Anna Akhmatova. Anna Akhmatova was a, a great uh, poet in Russia, and she was the poet of love. She was the great love of Modigliani, who, when he was a young guy, great painter, the guy that paints people with long necks and stuff. Modigliani painted her over and over. When World War I came, she insisted on going back to Russia. When Stalin took over, friends tried to get her to leave, and she wouldn't leave. Um, everybody else, like her, got killed. But he was either afraid to kill her or decided not to kill her because of his wife. And instead, he killed everyone around her. He killed her husband. He killed her child. Anybody that helped her got killed. She, her, she, all of her poems were destroyed. All of her, uh, it, when she tried to write something, the KGB would come in and seize what she had written. So the only poems she could write were on her own soul. And she did. She wrote probably the greatest Russian poetry and maybe the greatest poetry of the 20th century, just composing it in her own mind. She wrote a, a great poem called Requiem about the people that had died in the camps. And in it, she describes going to a prison called Kresge Prison and passing out parcels and having people say, look, will you someday, someday tell people about this? Yes, I swear I will. Much later, they wanted to build a statue of her. And she said the only place she would let a statue be built is in overlooking Kresge Prison. And so finally, they did in the... In the, once in the period the Soviet Union collapsed, they built a statue of Anna Akhmatova on the Nev Nevsky River overlooking Kresge Prison. 
They say that uh, as she wanted, and as her poem says, that when it snows, the snow falls on her eyes and they cry for all the people who died in that prison. And do you know that, that Putin closed the prison and moved it out of town? <laughs> the refuseniks all gather under the statue of Anna Akhmatova because they say even Putin is afraid, afraid of Anna Akhmatova like Stalin was. She stands there kind of tall with a, holding a rosary overlooking the prison. And now the prison is closed because they were too afraid to get rid of the statue. Yeah. I'm, uh, one thing I've talked about before is, um, you know, if you kind of rank the current governments as far as uh, the most oppressive, you know, obviously I think North Korea is the, is the top. They're the best at what they do for that type of, you know, it's not good, not, not, not in a good way, but they're just the best at that. And it's funny because these governments will telegraph exactly the things that are fearful that they're fearful of. They're not fearful of sanctions. They're not fearful of some kind of military incursion. They're actually afraid of people just talking, thinking, enjoying life, having hope. And it's it's so weird because you know um, going through these stories and hearing them to me, it's like, hey guys in D.C., if you'd actually just read the history, <laughs> like. The Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Saudis, the Iranians, they're all, you know what they're afraid of? Just people actually enjoying life and thinking. Um, and I'm not saying that it's as simple as that, but on some level it kind of is because North Korea, you know what they don't have? They ain't letting you on the internet. You know, well, uh, somebody exactly like you. And uh, look, they can't, they can't stand the guy who says, wait, we were supposed to have paradise and, you know, we're standing in bread lines. Right. Well, we were supposed to have human freedom and we're not allowed to talk. And uh, so, of course, what they do is they kill them. And if they're prominent, they kill them secretly. Uh, all of a sudden, gee, uh, Sarah hasn't jogged as much as she should and she has a heart attack or <laughs> John has a respiratory problem. So he, he gets a little dose of anthrax and develops supposedly pneumonia. Or uh, if they're not prominent, you just shoot them in the back of the head outside of uh, in Moscow recently, uh, four years ago, they discovered a, a graveyard that had 400,000 more people, bodies in it that they didn't even know about. The guy that discovered it, they've tried to imprison for discovering it. Mm. There's a building described in our book, the Lubyanka. There were over a half million people just shot in the back of the head in that building, in, in a single building. Um, to bring it to current day, we have an article that appeared in the New York Post yesterday talking about another wave of deaths we've seen, which are the fake suicides of the Russian oligarchs. I don't know if you've seen that in the news. There are seven recently in the last uh, six weeks, seven billionaires in Russia have suddenly decided to commit suicide uh, one by one. The last uh, three of them have chosen to commit suicide, killing their young children and their wives. In two cases, supposedly, uh, the, the very last case, the Protestantist, but one of three, the uh, oligarch supposedly stabbed to death with an ax and a knife, his child and his wife, whom he described as the princess, his child. And uh, then he hung himself, except there are no fingerprints on the ax or the knife. And no blood on him. No blood on him. And nobody knows any reason why he would be unhappy. Um, these are, these are what are called liternoi killings. They're described in the book. The purpose of that is so that Putin can deny killing him, but at the same time, it says to every oligarch in the Soviet Union, in Russia, if you oppose me, I will kill not only you, but I will kill your young children. 
a lot of people are willing to die, or not a lot, some people are willing to die for their country, but not very many people are willing to have their children slaughtered. Right. Uh, and so that's, that was the seventh suicide in the past six weeks since he entered uh, the Ukraine of just oligarchs. And, yeah, we uh, had on uh, Desmond Shum, who was a Chinese billionaire who uh, moved out of China, and he's over in the UK now. And so when his book came out, um, Red Roulette, I'll try to link to that episode in the show notes, um, the CCP had had his wife, and they let his wife out briefly to call him to try to stop the book from coming out. And then I think, I haven't heard lately, I think she's back, um, you know, wherever they have her at. And so um, it is a very, very uh, scary world at times. Okay, so let's talk quickly in the last few minutes we have here about um, COVID-19, the pandemic. Uh, we've kind of touched on that. So uh, the book says it and the road to the great pandemic. So maybe tie this thread of communism to the pandemic. You talk about the Wuhan lab, um, the virus, uh, it seems at least a lot of people think that the virus came from there. Um, how is that tied to the, the larger ethos of communism? What actually happened is Stalin began with individual literary killings, anonymous killings, deniable killings. And then he thought, look, if we can kill individual people, why can't we kill whole races? And so he started huge bioweapons projects in China. The first big leak was at a place called Saratov, where, where plague leaked into Moscow. And so on nearly killed uh, Stalin himself in 1939. Uh, he started huge bioweapons facilities. They spread to China. We identified, that is we, the US government, identified 14 different, not biolabs, but biowar labs in China in, in the year 2002. They were selling bioweapons to Iran. The biggest of all those labs was Wuhan, China. And of course, in 1919, I mean, 2019, a new disease appeared in Wuhan, China, COVID-19, the doctor who reported it was arrested for reporting state secrets, and he supposedly died, although he's only 35, of the COVID virus five weeks later. The death rate is less than one and a half percent for a guy 35, and so did everybody else. Uh, they all died, and the records were all destroyed. All the forensic records were destroyed of how it came about, um, and they repeatedly lied. The COVID virus is a bat virus from the Himalayas, found only in one cave, that was in the Wuhan lab that was altered. It added another 4% uh, to the uh, DNA of the original bat virus, making it much more communicable. Um, that's easy to do these days with a tool called the CRISPR tool. Um, it's never been found naturally in nature anywhere. The disease reappears right on the doorstep of the military and other labs in Wuhan. And it's chemo sabi, we know nothing. But exactly the same thing happened in China in 1977 as the book outlines. And they confessed, oh, sorry, we were working on a vaccine for a, a bug that existed only in our own lab and it just got away from us. Our, we were, why do you work on a vaccine for a bug that exists only in your own lab with the army, which is what they were doing. They were developing that as a bioweapon and a debilitating bioweapon. And they didn't mean to, but it escaped. That's what actually happened. They've got some really nasty stuff. They've got, they've got smallpox and Marburgers and a lot of things that would, would kill a lot worse than COVID-19. Our country is completely unprepared, not a matter of Democrats or Republicans, it's a matter of we need to get our stuff together and get ready for these people. And it starts off with telling the truth about, what, about who they are and what they actually have. And then we need to actually stockpile vaccines. We need to 
have better tracing systems for disease, and we need to uh, we need to get ready for for the possibility of of a of, of a madman like Putin having somebody you know cough in Kansas, and having uh, smallpox spread. Or the guy also specializes in agricultural and livestock diseases. So uh, it's a it's a frightening deal. The next war may be fought with three or four coughs and not nuclear weapons because they're untraceable. If I launch a nuclear weapon, you launch one back. If somebody coughs in Kansas, we don't know who did it or how it came about. Okay, Sarah, I'm gonna let you close us out here. What maybe was the one thing that you changed your mind on or that you really kind of thought, well, I kind of thought this way going in, but um, maybe sharpened your perspective going through this process of writing this book. Um, it, it seems talking to me, we talk to authors who write books like this, that they've, they kind of have a thesis, but usually it's, molded a little bit ours changed somewhat we started writing this about four years ago we've got 650 endnotes i mean we've it's been thoroughly researched but as we were studying about stalin and his laboratory one um as we were finishing the book COVID 19 hit and we saw amazing similarities between what was happening in the wuhan lab and what had happened in laboratory one a hundred years earlier and so we actually changed our thesis somewhat to, to begin talking about these liternoi poisonings of one person, two people, uh, to mass killings. Um, so the, the Stalinist Marxist ideology that began a year ago, a uh, hundred years ago, spread to North Korea and to China. As John said, there are now 14 bio war labs in China. Um, so our, our thesis did change as the world changed and current events changed. It's rooted right in their ideology. If you think man is only human material, then you're, then bioweapons bio make perfect sense. And so do literary killings. It's sad. It's only if you believe human beings have dignity that you think they're horrible. Okay, and I ask everyone this question. Next book, got a new book working on? Oh. <laughs> I'll work with John on any book. He's a dream to work with. We, this is our the second book we've written together. The first book was an archaeological book that became a number three bestseller about archaeology under the Vatican. So this is a completely different. I guess you'd say we're masters at, at detective genre. We were both lawyers, both on, I was on the law review and, and stuff and in my class and clerk for rank was. So a mystery attracts us both instantly. And so that the two books we've, we've written have been mysteries that unpeel level, level by level by level. You start off with them and you're just shocked as you get into them. Both uh, stories, actually. This book uh, was shocking to us. We started off and with the idea of Lab One, and then we learned about Pavlova and her murder. Who would ever anticipate she'd well, be murdered? We learned that when she was dying, she was saying, I was poisoned, I was poisoned. And then we learned about the poison gang in Paris and the targeting of Pavlova. Um, then all of a sudden we read the reports from the St Department of State that says the Russian bio labs are going to leak. And then all of a sudden there's COVID-19. And uh, so it's, it's a, a bad guy keeps giving. That's one thing we've learned. That's true. And an archaeological mystery is very much the same way. It, you, you keep finding stuff out. Well, congratulations on the book, The Dancer and the Devil. We'll link to it in the show notes. I will say I'm envious of you. I always... Always look at these people who get the who get the cool job of investigating and writing these books. I'm like, man, you guys, you guys have got the good careers. So uh, I hope you uh, look forward to your next book and um, hope that hope this one sells a gazillion copies. And for the listeners, be sure to check it out. We'll link to the show notes. Um, 
John. Also, and, I'd love to share our website. We yes, have both posts and um, different media appearances on there. It's www.danceranddevil.com. Dancer and Devil. Know these, just Devil.com. Okay, I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes for the listeners as well. Guys, thank you so much. And listeners, we'll be back soon. We've enjoyed being on there. Thank you.